Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Pfizer can now start shipping vaccines for young kids. The lead starts right now. 28 million children in the United States could soon get a COVID shot as millions of adults in the U.S. continue to refuse to get theirs, even at risk of losing their jobs. With tens of thousands in New York City alone fighting a vaccine mandate that goes into an effect in minutes. The final days of Virginia voting in a tight governor's race, what the results could reveal for both Democrats and Republicans. Plus... The person responsible for guns on the set of the film Rust is now speaking about the incident for the first time as authorities underline they've got some questions for her that they need answered. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with breaking news in the health lead. The shot clock is winding down. Parents are one step closer to getting their young children vaccinated if they want moments ago. The Food and Drug Administration granted emergency use authorization of Pfizer's COVID vaccine for kids ages 5 to 11. And now the drug company can start shipping child-sized doses to pediatricians, pharmacies, and vaccination sites where the shots will be administered. The CDC still needs to greenlight use of the vaccine. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports, that could happen as early as Tuesday. Pfizer can start shipping vaccine doses for those younger kids 5 to 11 because the FDA just granted emergency use authorization. There could be shots in little arms as soon as Wednesday if the CDC green lights. Uh, This is a great day for the health and well-being of children. Vaccine mandates for older folks are the hot button issue right now. Florida's governor just filed suit to halt an upcoming mandate for federal contractors. You know, many people have recovered from COVID and also have uh, strong immunity uh, through through prior infection. A CDC study of 7,000 people hospitalized with COVID-like illness published at lunchtime states, we now have additional evidence that reaffirms the importance of COVID-19 vaccines, even if you have had prior infection. Vaccination can provide a higher, more robust and more consistent level of immunity. In Rhode Island, a mandate kicks in for state health workers Sunday. There are holdouts. We'll work on other plans to um, activate strategies, including the National Guard, if, if necessary. In Iowa, lawmakers passed a bill granting unemployment benefits to anyone fired for failing to get a shot. And in Oakland, California, the school board voted to unenroll currently eligible but unvaccinated kids come January 1 or Teach them online only. Now, I just want to underline, this Pfizer vaccine could be the first vaccine rolled out in this country for kids as young as five. And so what happens next? Well, those CDC advisors meet 
on Tuesday. If they are in favor, then it goes to the CDC director. And if she green lights, then we could be seeing shots in those little arms Wednesday morning. And remember, the dosage for kids is about is not about. It is exactly a third of the dose that's getting stuck into the rest of us. Right. Jason. Ten micrograms. Nick Watt, thanks so much. Your house is on fire. Who are you going to call? Well, in New York City, city officials are bracing for the possibility that thousands of essential workers, including firefighters, cops, sanitation employees, could be placed on unpaid leave if they do not meet today's deadline to get at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. Let's get right to CNN's Miguel Marquez, who's been following the story for us. And Miguel, Mayor Bill de Blasio said he is expecting 11th hour vaccinations. Does that seem to be the case? It does. Uh, As we saw with teachers and nurses uh, before this, there are a lot of individuals that are getting uh, those shots in the arms in the last minutes, in part because the city is offering $500 if you get the shot before 5 p.m. So they have about an hour at this point to to get that sort of inducement if uh, if they choose. Look, we're talking about 160,000 workers, the highest profile Uh, Several dozen agencies, the highest profile agencies, police, fire, emergency services, sanitation. Those numbers were quite low, the number of vaccinations in in recent days, but they have climbed. Police, for instance, are up to about 80 percent. Firefighters were only about 65 percent a few days ago. Now they're up over 75 percent. So it looks like they are all climbing. The plan at this point, at least for the fire department union, is to have all of their employees go to work on Monday, whether they are vaccinated or not, and let the city send them home if that's what they choose. Now, keep in mind, they can still get vaccinated over the weekend. If they don't and they show up and they go home on Monday, they'll be put on unpaid leave. They can still get vaccinated. They'll have their medical benefits, their union benefits, so they can still get uh, vaccinated along the way uh, as as they choose. But right now, it is a game of chicken between the city and the unions here. The city says they are prepared between canceling vacations and uh, offering overtime. They can make it work. There may be some reduction in services, but the city says they're ready for it. Jake? So yesterday, the firefighters union protested outside the mayor's residence, Gracie Mansion. Um, what, what kind of resistance to the vaccine mandate are you seeing on the ground? I mean, we, we are seeing a lot of it. There was a very big protest on Monday among many of the different groups. Uh, yesterday at uh, Gracie Mansion, there were several hundred, if not maybe over a thousand uh, firefighters and, and other workers who were out there. What is not clear, even though the vac- vaccination rates were low but are climbing, it's still not clear how many people are just not reporting that they have been vaccinated. It is possible they have been vaccinated, but just not reporting it. The union's really trying to to build leverage here with Mayor de Blasio. He is not liked with the unions. They felt that he did this all too quickly and didn't give them enough time to react to this mandate. Uh, So they are hoping that when the new mayor is elected on Tuesday, Mayor de Blasio will leave at the end of the year because he has termed out, that there will be a different relationship and and they will have a a better deal going forward. Jake? All right, Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss CNN medical analyst Dr. Jonathan Reiner, a cardiologist and professor at GW Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Reiner, thanks, thanks for doing this. So if the CDC approves the vaccine for young kids on Tuesday, which is anticipated, how soon can shots be administered in kids 5 to 11? Wednesday. Uh, I think this is a, a big, big moment for uh, the 28 million kids who are vulnerable to infection, to their families. Uh, it's a big moment for keeping schools open around the United States, particularly as we get into cold weather 
and people move indoors and typically respiratory viruses increase in frequency. And it's a big moment for protecting the still vulnerable people in the uh, community, people who are immunocompromised, either as a uh, a consequence of their uh, illnesses or treatment for illnesses. So I think it's an important step forward. Uh, CDC will certainly approve it. And uh, the uh, CDC uh, director will uh, sign off on that on Tuesday night. When it comes to vaccinating kids 5 to 11, which is obviously important, how much of it is about protecting these kids 5 to 11 versus how much is it about slowing the spread so that other individuals who are immunocompromised who might be 12 or 30 or 100 uh, protecting them? It's both. So uh, while kids thankfully don't die in large numbers, although we have lost over 700 children to this illness, kids do get really sick, kids get hospitalized, kids do end up in ICUs. And over the last six weeks, we've seen over a million kids get infected. So it is about preventing kids from getting sick, and every parent wants their child to remain well. Look, we give kids uh, influenza vaccine, which does prevent the rare uh, fatality, but primarily prevents them from getting sick. But just as importantly, it's about putting the rest of this fire out. It's about getting the spread in the community uh, lower. It's about, again, protecting the people that vaccines can't protect because they just can't mount an antibody response. So it's sort of a holistic response to trying to get us onto the other side of this pandemic. And there are a lot of schools where there is no remote learning uh, period. And this is the only option is either mask the kids or vaccinate the kids or hopefully uh, both. Uh, there's a new poll that shows that a majority of parents in the United States, a majority, say they will not vaccinate their younger kids right away. It breaks down roughly a third will, a little bit less than a third, actually. Roughly a third are wait and seers, and a, a third will not. Um, what happens if we don't get sufficient kids vaccinated? The virus remains in our community. Kids are out of schools. Maybe some schools have to close down if you know, large numbers of children in certain grades get sick. Uh, the virus, the virus continues on. I think now the responsibility really falls to our pediatricians who are universally loved by their patients and the parents of their patients, trusted by them. It falls on the pediatricians really to start talking to parents about why this is important. People trust their doctors. They particularly trust their pediatricians. And now we'll see, you know, how deep that trust is. I hope people will take the opportunity to talk to their doctors because they are going to recommend this, this vaccine. A new analysis done for CNN shows that at least 89% of those Americans who are already vaccinated, like you or me, uh, will qualify for booster shots if it has been six months since they got their second shot or their last dose. Do you recommend that everyone of the 89% get our booster shots? I think eventually everyone is going to get a booster shot. When we started to to hear that boosters were on the horizon, one of the uh, sort of talking points we heard from, from folks like Tony Fauci was, you know, in retrospect, this was really always going to be a three-dose vaccine. So, and I think that's true. And if the mRNA vaccines are really truly three-dose vaccines, why aren't they three-dose vaccines for everyone? And, I, and if, if we look at who, who is high risk, and we include hypertension and obesity uh, and uh, public-facing job, yeah, then just about everyone can fit into one of these categories, with maybe the exception of, you know, a 20, you know, 21-year-old with no past medical history. But the vast majority of us will fall into that category. And we know that everyone is 
is susceptible to reinfection the longer it, it's been since your, since your last dose. So my sense is, if this is really a three-dose vaccine, then let's get the third dose into people when they get to six months. And I think we're sort of inching towards that kind of uh, strategy. All right, Dr. Reiner, thank you so much. Appreciate it. President Biden admits a, quote, clumsy mistake on the part of his administration as he meets with a key ally. Plus, the armorer speaks and says she was overruled on safety protocols before the fatal onset shooting. Stay with us. President Biden's overseas trip tops our worldly today. He just wrapped up day one of a marathon of meetings, ending the day with French President Emmanuel Macron trying to mend the U.S. relationship with its oldest ally after that nuclear submarine deal with Australia cost France billions. Biden, the second Catholic president in U.S. history, started the day with a lengthy 90-minute session with Pope Francis inside the Vatican in front of Vatican-controlled cameras only. President Biden seemed to have a warm reception with each leader. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins in Rome. She's traveling with the president. And Caitlin, Biden acknowledged some of the more sensitive subjects uh, he addressed behind closed doors with both leaders. Yes, meeting with the Pope behind closed doors for about 90 minutes, Jake, 75 minutes of that, which were one-on-one. And the president afterward was pretty candid, talking about what they had discussed. But also with the French president, that conversation happened in front of cameras over this public feud that broke out between the two countries about six weeks ago. President Biden conceding a faux pas with France. Biden attempting to repair his relationship with French President Emmanuel Macron following a major diplomatic rift. Is the relationship repaired? To use an English phrase, Biden candidly acknowledging the U.S. poorly handled a submarine deal with Australia and the United Kingdom, which undermined France and cost them a multi-billion dollar deal. I was under the impression that um, France had been informed long before that the deal was not coming through. Biden arguing that the U.S.-French relationship is too strong to let a diplomatic feud damage the friendship. There's too much we have done together, suffered together, celebrated together. Macron echoing that sentiment as he pushed his own priorities. What really matters now is what we will do together in the coming weeks, the coming months, the coming years. Before making up with the French, Biden spent 90 minutes behind closed doors with Pope Francis in what became a deeply personal meeting at the Vatican. But I know my son would want me to give this to you because on the back of it, I have the state of Delaware, the 261st unit my son served with. Amid a push by conservative U.S. bishops to deny him communion because of his support for abortion rights, Biden says the Pope called him a good Catholic. No, it didn't. It came up, we just talked about the fact that he was happy I was a good Catholic and I should keep receiving communion. He said that you should keep receiving communion. Yes. 
The president will end his trip with a global climate summit as his domestic agenda remains in limbo in Washington after Democrats declined to pass legislation cementing hundreds of billions to fight climate change. And the president has every right to go there and hold his head up high and show the world that we can tackle climate. We have no time to spare. And Jake, the way that they scaled back the climate provisions in the president's latest framework actually came up during his meeting with the Pope today, he said. Of course, climate was one of the number one issues on their agenda, something that they both deeply care about. But whether or not those agreements and that just framework that he got before leaving Washington and not an actual deal passed by Congress, if that's sufficient enough for those world leaders at the climate summit remains to be seen, Jake. Yeah, Caitlin, stay with me. I want to also bring in Nick Robertson, CNN's international diplomatic editor. Nick, let's start with the president's last meeting uh, of the day with French President Emmanuel Macron. Biden himself used the word clumsy to describe his own administration's handling of that submarine deal with Australia that cut France out of its own submarine deal with Australia. I want to play again a bit of that moment. I was under the impression President Biden might believe that he has patched up this diplomatic rift. How is it being received in France, the, the, the fallout and the apology? Uh, I think the groundwork that has gone in over the past few weeks has been referenced in the joint document, uh, joint statement that uh, President Biden and Emmanuel Macron have put out uh, speaks to that. The sort of concrete efforts that have happened over the past few weeks since they first spoke back in late September. Um, Macron seems to be taking some comfort from that, talks about the nuclear relationship, talks uh, about uh, defense uh, points that are important to France. And of course, important for France as well is security cooperation, particularly in the Sahel of Africa. So I think uh, France has been able to take something away. Macron comes out of this looking better, much better than he did a few weeks ago. And he needed that. There are elections coming up. I think they're both playing it as a plus, and and it is for Macron right now. Caitlin, um, this is the the first meeting President Biden, who is only the second Catholic president in the history of the United States, the first meeting he has with the Pope as president. Um, It sounds like it was a very emotional and meaningful meeting. I I do wonder, there are tens of thousands of Catholic Americans who remain traumatized by the the decades, if not centuries old, Catholic sex abuse scandal, which includes some really nefarious cover-ups by the church itself. Some of the abusers were even in Biden's own diocese in Delaware. Do we have any idea if he brought this up with the head of the church to make sure nothing like this ever happens again? Well, Jake, it's a subject that seems almost unavoidable, but we've asked the White House whether or not explicitly it came up during that meeting, given how long that meeting went. And the White House hasn't said yet. We know some of the touchier subjects the president would decline to say whether or not that was something they explicitly discussed, including, of course, what's happening right now, the controversy inside the United States with those conservative bishops trying to say the president should not be able to get communion. He was saying that's a private conversation. But this was a really lengthy meeting, Jake. And so we've seen the priorities that they talked about, of course, what was on the official schedule, climate change, immigration and whatnot, the COVID-19 pandemic. This was not mentioned in the readout that we got from the White House that we should Hmm. note. And Nick, UK UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson will be among the world leaders Biden meets with tomorrow. What are we expecting from that? 
Yeah, this is going to be about Iran. I mean, he will, uh, Biden will have a separate sort of brush by, as it's being described with Boris Johnson. But there is this sort of quadrilateral meeting, if you will, uh, where President Biden gets to talk with the other partners in the Iran deal, remembering that just in the past couple of days, Iran has agreed with an EU uh, diplomat that they will get back into the JCPOA, the nuclear talks that stalled at the end of June. Uh, so this is a chance tomorrow for President Biden to speak with Emmanuel Macron, um, with the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and this is her farewell farewell summit, if you will, uh, and with Boris Johnson. So this will be a real sort of uh, frank focus, make sure they're both sort of all on the same message page, if you will, of how to deal with Iran, because this is really seen as an important moment, a pivot moment with Iran. Are they really going to get back into talks? And what is the cost if they don't? So this will be an important meeting on the Iran on the Iran issue tomorrow, Jake. And Caitlin, after the G20 summit, uh, President Biden then heads to the climate conference in Scotland. He'll do so with only, as you noted, a, a commitment of clean energy initiatives in, instead of a deal in hand from Congress. Yeah, and I think that could question, you know, make some of the leaders question, you know, how firm that commitment is, because it's not just that the president wants to go there and have this and say, yes, we got this passed. The White House is hoping to use it as a standard kind of to show other nations and their leaders what the United States is doing and say that this is something you should follow suit on. And Jake, we should note that the president, of course, is going into this meeting right now without having that in hand. And it's really a standard that his own administration and the president has set, because when he was discussing these climate provisions with Democrats, privately at the White House earlier this week. He said the U.S., uh, prestige, the prestige of the United States was on the line and they wanted to make sure they had that. So that is a standard set by the White House and one that they are going to fall short of, of course, because of what is happening in Washington right now. All right, Caitlin Collins, Nick Robertson, thanks to you both. Appreciate it. So how is President Biden's foreign trip going? We're going to talk to the ranking Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee next. And our politics lead, an old saying here in Washington held that politics stopped at the water's edge, meaning everyone kept quiet when a U.S. president headed overseas on a diplomatic mission. That's kind of been out the window for a long time. These days, it's all politics all the time. So President Biden's in Europe for the G20 summit, as well as the United Nations Conference of Climate Change. Uh, let's get a Republican perspective on it all. Congressman Michael McCall, the top Republican in the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He represents uh, a district, uh, what is the Austin area of Texas? Austin to Houston. Austin to Houston. So, uh, just broadly, what's the most important issue you want uh, President Biden to talk about at the G20 summit? Well, for me personally, uh, national security. I think uh, China, with their launch of the hypersonic uh, missile that we detected, it's been released now in, in August. Uh, it's a huge, uh, serious threat, not only to the United States and our homeland, but to the world. Uh, these uh, missiles can go undetected. Our missile defense systems cannot stop them. Um, and I was uh, disappointed here that China is not going to participate participate in person, but rather virtually. And um, um, I really think the role that China is playing right now is, is a now global military and economic superpower is, is, needs to be addressed. What would you want the G20 to do uh, with China? I mean, they will be participating virtually. Uh, I'm not sure what they're trying to convey with that, maybe that they don't have to go, or maybe right. because of the pandemic that originated there. But in any case, what, what, what do you want the other 19 nations to do? Well, I think this, the Sputnik moment needs to be addressed by uh, the international community. And we need to look at, you know, international treaties. Uh, we have no treaties with China when it comes to, uh, you know, ballistic missiles with these hypersonics now. Uh, their capabilities actually uh, exceeded what our intelligence community thought they were capable of doing. And I think this, the world stage needs to address this threat. 
Um, you know, we have new start with Russia. Uh, we need to kind of a new start agreement that includes both Russia and China when it comes to nuclear weapons. And we don't have that with China right now. What are you looking for uh, in the U.N. climate conference, both as a U.S. congressman and as a congressman from Texas, which obviously a lot of your economy depends on fossil fuels? Well, you know, look, I, I think it's got to be a transition. Um, we're all for you know, a clean environment, but I think some of Biden's energy policies with you know, letting Putin complete his pipeline into Europe, it's a dirty energy. And now we're relying on OPEC again, which doesn't, it's not as clean as the United States. Shut down Keystone, not permitting in the United States. We were an expo- a large number one exporter of energy. Now we're going back to being reliant on other countries. Uh, I do think uh, that if they're going to talk about this, and I think it should be talked about, climate's important. Uh, but if you're going to do that, why is China uh, not being held accountable to the same standards as all of the other nations? And you know why? Because under the Paris agreements, they were treated as a developing nation. Uh, this goes back to, you know, the World Bank can give them interest-free loans, Belt and Road Initiative. China, as we know, is one of the number one polluters uh, in the world. I think the number one. I would polluter. say number one, I think, with Belt and Road Initiative in Africa and Latin they're firing coal power plants up, you know, every week. Um, and, uh, you know, if this is not addressed, it's really an issue of, you know, I'm just more pragmatic about this. What, what's going to really work? You know, we can all sign up for this thing and put all this money in. But if you're going to leave out uh, the number one polluter, uh, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. So I think if they could hold China accountable, that would make sense. Um, Speaking of China, uh, CNN's Will Ripley got an exclusive interview with the president of Taiwan earlier this week uh, in which she publicly disclosed, uh, surprisingly perhaps, that there are U.S. troops in Taiwan providing uh, training. And and China, the government obviously um, took umbrage, uh, restated its opposition to any official military contact between the U.S. and, and Taiwan. This is potentially very dangerous, uh, combustible situation. Yeah, it, it, it's um, uh, China's on a sprint right now with Taiwan. They took over Hong Kong, I think, after Afghanistan. Uh, I think both Putin and President Xi see weakness, uh, and they're looking at Taiwan right now. I think the nuclear submarine deal was a positive thing, the administration. The one with Australia. With Australia and, and the Brits. But that's going to take years to implement. And so I got a classified briefing on this, not privy to talk about this a, a lot on national TV, but... But it was chilling uh, in terms of the, uh, the influence that China has over the island, what they've done in terms of circling the island, uh, and the disparity in, in terms of weapon systems. Uh, you know, Taiwan needs an asymmetric warfare system, uh, just like what uh, Beijing has done to us with the hypersonic. And that was a wake-up call, the hypersonic, uh, that if we don't, if we don't show deterrence uh, you know, against China with Taiwan, uh, they will take it over. Um, and so I think deterrence is really the key here. And the Indo-Pacific Command uh, that we got briefed by, uh, they're aware of that. The administration's aware of it. Um, and I think uh, we got to show a strong deterrence there. I have a hard time imagining many Americans, especially after the 20 years of war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq, thinking that they are willing to send one American service member, one man, one woman, one son, one daughter, to fight a war against China to protect Taiwan. I mean... However lofty the goal, however solid the commitment, however, however important it is to deter China. I just have a very tough time imagining any Americans saying, yeah, that's worth it. Well, I, I think we have a war-weary nation. Uh, that actually, that point was very much brought up. Do the American people, at the end of the day, would they be willing to go to war with China over Taiwan? And we can talk about the democracy and freedom 
issues, the fact that Taiwan is a great intelligence asset for us uh, in the region. Uh, but if we don't show that deterrence, if it gets to that breaking point where all of a sudden the CCP is moving in, are we really going to be there as a nation and our allies to stop it? And, and lastly, speaking of Afghanistan, uh, tomorrow marks two months since the U.S., uh, the last plane uh, left uh, that country. In a speech today, U.S. government special inspector general blasted both the state and defense departments for withholding information since at least 2015. So this is both uh, or not both is Biden, Trump and Obama uh, about warning signs that could have predicted what took place. Um, have you found the Pentagon and State Department, generally speaking, transparent, cooperative when you've had hearings or participated in hearings? Well, I applaud the IG, the watchdogs efforts here, and they have been withholding information. They haven't been transparent with Congress, uh, not just in the last summer, as you and I've talked a lot about, but also uh, for the last, uh, well, shoot, 20 maybe, years, maybe 20 years, <laughs> yeah. right? And we need a candid assessment of that, just like with the evacuation itself. Uh, I think it's important. I've asked my chairman and I'm ranking member to hold a full investigation on this. We've had some hearings, but I've hired uh, actually a former CNN reporter to do our investigation uh, into what happened last summer. How did it get so wrong, as you said on air? How did this whole thing get so wrong where we left so many Americans behind, so many of our Afghan partners behind that are surely uh, now uh, probably most likely going to be executed by the Taliban? Congressman Michael McCall, it's always good to have you here. Thank you so much. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Jake. It's a contest that could give us a clue into the midterms, the latest in the final fight for Virginia's governor's mansion. Stay with us. In our politics lead, it is the final weekend of campaigning in a race seen as a bellwether for the midterms. Democrats rolling out another big hitter in the Virginia governor's race. Vice President Kamala Harris set to campaign with Terry McAuliffe in just a few hours, heading to Norfolk, a military area with a large minority population. It's an area that Biden won by more than 45 points. But it could be the inability of Democrats in Washington to find consensus, and, and that could be a fatal blow to the McAuliffe bid. CNN's Arlette Signs take a closer look now at the last-minute messaging wars on both sides of the aisle. With four days to go, the race for Virginia's next governor is entering its final sprint. This race is going to be decided about who works the hardest, who plays the hardest, who leaves nothing undone over the next four days. Democrat Terry McAuliffe leaning on big names. Virginia! Like Vice President Kamala Harris and Virginia native Pharrell Williams in Norfolk tonight. Hoping to get Democrats happy into the polls. Big, big plans to take Virginia. None of this happens if you don't vote. While Republican Glenn Youngkin is rolling through Virginia on a bus tour ahead of Tuesday's election. Polls don't elect governors. Voters do. Voters do. And so now it's time for all of us to go to work. Nearly one million Virginians have already cast their ballots, with most polls showing the candidates running neck and neck, just one year after President Biden beat Donald Trump in the Commonwealth by 10 points. For months, Democrats have tried to tie Yunkin to former President Trump. Just remember this, I ran against Donald Trump. And Terry is running against an acolyte of Donald Trump. But Yunkin has tried to walk a Trump tightrope, even as the former president plans to call into a conservative radio host's tele-rally on election eve. Well, he's not coming. 
And, uh, and in fact, we're campaigning as Virginians in Virginia with Virginians. As he seeks a second act as governor, McAuliffe is heading into Election Day without a much hoped for Democratic win on Capitol Hill, with President Biden's economic agenda still tangled up in division among Democrats. They just need to do their job and quit prancing around. Get in a room, get this passed. We need help here in the states. The stakes are high for both parties as they have their eyes on 2022 when Democrats will defend their narrow majorities in Congress. This is real. This is not only the future of Virginia. This is who we are as a country. Now, Vice President Kamala Harris will take the stage with Terry McAuliffe here in Norfolk in just a few hours. This is the second time she is campaigning with him during this race. And it comes as both Youngkin and McAuliffe are sent to launch a full court press over the weekend. Each candidate has 10 events across Virginia as they are trying to gear up and drum up support heading into Tuesday. Jake. Arlott signs on the campaign trail in Norfolk, Virginia. Thanks so much. Tuesday night. Is election night in America. CNN is covering the high-stakes governor's races in both Virginia and New Jersey, plus New York City's mayor's race. Our special live coverage starts Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Investigators are trying to piece together what happened in that fatal Alec Baldwin shooting, and now we're learning what the armorer, the person in charge of the guns, has to say. That's next. Continuing coverage of the tragedy in New Mexico on our pop culture lead today, the armorer, the person in charge of the guns on the movie set, Rust, says she, quote, had no idea, unquote, where the real bullets that killed the film's director of photography, Helena Hutchins, came from, an admission made in a statement put out by her lawyers, the armorer's lawyers, as investigators tried to piece together what led to Alec Baldwin firing a gun that killed one person and injured another during rehearsal. And as CNN's Natasha Chen reports for us now, The statement on behalf of the armorer raises more questions than answers. One of the last people to handle the gun handed to Alec Baldwin before he fired that fatal shot has broken her silence. A statement from the attorneys for Rust Armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed says she has been falsely portrayed. It goes on claiming safety is Hannah's number one priority on set and would never have been compromised if live ammo were not introduced. Hannah has no idea where the live rounds came from. The Santa Fe sheriff told CNN the live rounds may be key to their investigation. That's the focus of the of the investigation, as I stated, uh, why these rounds were there, who brought them there and how they got there. Reacting to allegations reported by the RAP, crew members may have used the guns for target practice during downtime. Gutierrez-Reed's lawyers say she never saw anyone shoot live rounds with the guns, nor would she permit that. We encourage uh, Ms. Gutierrez-Reed to come in so we can try to determine uh, it, you know, how those live rounds ended up on set. Gutierrez-Reed's attorneys defended their client, stating she was hired for two positions on Rust, making it hard for her to focus on the job of armorer. It says she fought for training, time to maintain weapons properly, but was overruled by production. A new inventory list for a warrant reveals 12 revolvers, a rifle, and ammunition have been recovered from a prop truck. It's unclear if the ammunition recovered includes live rounds. Gutierrez-Reed claims two accidental discharges on the Rust set before the fatal shooting were at the hands of other people and that she's never had an accidental discharge. A key grip who worked with Gutierrez-Reed on a previous film says there were unannounced discharges on that set. It was our star in our film that had had actually 
uh, yelled out about the, the, the unannounced discharge. He says in general, producers find younger people willing to work for less instead of hiring Hollywood veterans who demand more manpower and time for everyone's safety. This young mother, this DP, was killed on a movie set because of money. And that's really what it boils down to. And that's the sad part about this. The production company behind Rust has said it was not aware of any complaints about weapon or prop safety and that safety is the top priority. Our colleague Josh Campbell is also reporting that since giving an initial statement to the sheriff's office here, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed has yet to indicate whether she'll follow up with another interview. That same source tells Josh that investigators have been in direct contact with Alec Baldwin, who's willingly spoken with them when they've called him for additional follow-up questions, Jay. All right, Natasha Chen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A quick note from us here at The Lead. We don't often mention our competitors, but the Fox Channel anchor opposite us from 4 until 5 Eastern, Neil Cavuto, has been in the news, and we just wanted to take a moment to say a couple things about Neil. Neil is a survivor. He has multiple sclerosis. He has had open heart surgery. He beat stage 4 cancer, and he's now fighting COVID. Neil recently talked about the importance of vaccines on air precisely to protect people like him who have compromised immune systems. Now, sadly, many in the audience watching have been lied to about vaccines by others. Neil has received death threats for his simple, logical, science-based call for vaccinations. And Neil Cavuto is a gentleman. Neil Cavuto does not deserve that. Stay strong, Neil. We wish you health and a long, long life. Coming up next, can Democrats come to an agreement on President Biden's agenda? We'll talk to someone at the center of all the action. The chairwoman of the Congressional Progressive Caucus will join us next. Welcome to the Lead Object Tapper. This hour, a COVID vaccine can now ship out for kids 5 to 11, but millions of parents have questions before they'll make an appointment for their kids. We're going to talk to the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Plus, a top Republican critic of Trump will not run for re-election, but Adam Kinzinger has not ruled out running for another office. And leading this hour, President Biden's last-minute push for his agenda in Washington fails. And Democrats punt, for now, on his legacy-defining legislation. We're going to talk to the chair of the Progressive House Caucus in moments. But first, President Biden has kicked off his foreign trip. The proud Catholic president meeting with Pope Francis and with French President Emmanuel Macron after a minor diplomatic dust-up or major diplomatic dust-up, depending on your point of view. President Biden admitting today his administration had handled that all in a, quote, clumsy manner. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins. She's in Rome traveling with the president. And Caitlin, Biden has a packed schedule with world leaders. So does his part in negotiations with Democrats on Capitol Hill over that agenda, does that for now get put on the back burner? Well, the White House seemed to think it was a concern going into those meetings, Jake, because they were the ones making the case to Democrats last week, including the president himself, that they needed to get that agenda passed or at least have a solid agreement on it so the president could come here to Rome and then go off to the climate summit in Scotland and make that argument effectively. And they were worried that not only would the climate provision of that argument be undermined by the fact that it has not yet been passed by Democrats in Washington, but also the larger argument that the president is trying to make here, which is 
that America is back and democracy has been restored and democracy works, which, of course, has been his underlining argument all throughout his campaign and since he took office. And so I think that is kind of the question of how world leaders approach the president seeing this. But I think uh, some of his top aides have tried to tamp down expectations about that. You heard from a top climate advisor to the president this morning saying that they know other leaders know that the U.S. is headed in the right direction on climate. And other aides, including the National Security Advisor, saying that these world leaders understand domestic politics as well. Caitlin, the, uh, the president had a clear message at the G7 several months ago. America is back, he said. Can the same message still resonate on this trip? I think it's being challenged a little bit, Jake. And so we'll see how these world leaders receive the president. You saw how the French president responded to President Biden after the diplomatic feud that they had over that scuttled submarine deal just about six weeks ago. And so warm publicly, of course, they had a pretty frank conversation with cameras still in the room. But I think it's a broader scale, Jake. It's not just saying America is back. When that happened with the French deal, the French were likening President Biden to former President Trump, saying he was adopting his tactics of catching allies by surprise. And that's something that obviously President Biden did not take well to. And so we'll see how the world leaders receive him, not just on that, but on the Afghanistan withdrawal and other issues as well, Jake. Caitlin Collins traveling with the president in Rome. Caitlin, thanks so much. Here in Washington, D.C., Democrats bought themselves a little bit more time to work out their differences on the so-called Build Back Better Act, roughly $1.75 trillion in social safety net programs on everything from clean energy to universal pre-K to affordable housing. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill, where a brand new self-imposed deadline for Democrats, yet again, now looms. With President Biden overseas, his agenda at home is stuck. Months of Democratic bickering over the strategy, ultimately forcing Speaker Nancy Pelosi for the third time to delay a vote on Biden's $1.2 trillion plan to pump money into public works projects across the country, forcing an extension of highway programs until December 3rd, and prompting anger in the ranks. I'm more concerned about the message it's sending to the world right now that is looking at our system of governance with increasing concern about its viability. The reason for the delay? Progressives who are demanding moderate Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema endorse Biden's larger plan to expand the social safety net and combat climate change. It's really important that we pass both of these things together to make sure the United States is not a net emitter on fossil fuels and making climate change worse. The larger bill, the product of months of painstaking negotiations, where progressives were forced to compromise, slashing their $3.5 trillion plan in half, leaving out priorities like paid leave and a broader expansion of Medicare to appease Manchin, and dropping tuition-free community college and corporate tax rate hikes to win over cinema. But the bill still sweeping in nature, standing at $1.75 trillion, with preschool for all three- and four-year-olds, more than $500 billion to fight climate change, a Medicare expansion to include hearing coverage, an effusion of cash for affordable housing, and a year-long extension of the child tax credit. In a boon for Biden, progressives are endorsing the slim-down plan. We are really proud of the president and of our Progressive Caucus and our Progressive Allies for getting so many of our big priorities into the framework. Manchin has refused to take a position on the bill, but he told CNN that he's okay with the price tag, which is more than he originally proposed. Is 1.72 a big three, 2.75 too high for you? No, that was negotiated. And though Cinema did not endorse the bill, Democratic sources are confident that after conversations with her, the senator will ultimately be a yes. 
So even though Joe Biden came to Capitol Hill yesterday and called for the passage of both bills, he faced some criticism from Democratic moderates who wanted him to be more explicit in pushing for the final passage of the infrastructure bill yesterday. One of those, Dean Phillips of Minnesota, told me this is the commander in chief of the United States. When you spend political equity in front of a caucus two times in a month, I think it's, it's got to be awfully explicit and he has to be more forthright. Jake. Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State. She is the chair of the House Progressive Caucus. Uh, Congresswoman, let me start right there with what Dean Phillips, Congressman Dean Phillips uh, said, criticizing President Biden for not more directly telling House Democrats, I want you to go out there. I want you to vote for the bipartisan infrastructure package. And so I can go to uh, this global summit with this in my hand. And when we come back, we were then we're going to do the Build Back Better Act and we're going to make everybody happy. Would that have done the trick? Might that have gotten the infrastructure bill passed? Well, Jake, it's good to see you. Look, I think the president did a fantastic job. In fact, such a fantastic job that progressives, uh, that's a 96-member caucus, by the way, not always easy to all vote together. We enthusiastically and unanimously endorsed the framework that the president laid out. And that is a big deal. It was not the full bill text, but we endorsed it in principle, despite the fact that we have things that we wish were in there. And so that's what we wanted to send them off to Europe with, because as Caitlin said, the important thing is that the Build Back Better framework, uh, the Build Back Better Act, has over half a trillion dollars investment in climate. It finally makes us a country that has universal childcare and pre-K, big investments in housing, really transformative investments in almost every arena. Um, and that's what we wanted to make sure we sent the president off with. Now, we also believe, Jake, that we do need to make sure that we see the bill text, that everybody kind of has an opportunity to make sure that the framework is translated well. And that's what we were waiting for. And because we insisted on that, the legislative text was released finally yesterday. We are combing through a 1,600-page bill right now. And I really believe that within uh, a few days, we will be able to pass both these bills through the House. And that will be an enormous accomplishment of the president, of all of us across the Democratic caucus, and certainly of progressives who were bold enough to say we're not going to leave anybody behind. Right. But it's not a secret that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi wanted to bring the bipartisan infrastructure bill to the floor this week and then have the Build Back Better Act voted on when that is, is, is ready. Uh, and that did not happen. And you heard moderates like Congressman Dean Phillips and others saying, Biden, President Biden should have told the Democrats, go vote on infrastructure. We want that now. And then we'll come back and do Build Back Better. I'm just asking you if you think if Biden had done that, if the president had done that, would that have made a difference? Would your caucus enough members have voted for the infrastructure bill? I'm not sure that they would have, Jake. I mean, we have said for months, anybody that has been listening to us would know that we have been very clear that the two bills need to move together. Now, we've made a lot of compromises. We've been at the negotiating table. We backed off the idea of a Senate vote, which many of our members wanted. And we have said clearly, and I even signaled to the Speaker, to the White House, to everyone several days ago that we were not going to have the votes for just an infrastructure bill. The president recognized that. And he also 
also recognize that it's important that we get both these bills done. That was his message to us. Get both these bills done and everyone should vote for both of these bills. And I think that at the end of the day, progressives will actually be delivering both of these bills. And I know that the majority of our caucus will be excited that we um, we are getting this done. Do you think, based on your conversations with them, uh, although you have to tell me who you've talked to in terms of Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin, do you think they will vote for the Build Back Better Act as it has been outlined and written? Well, I've been speaking with both of them, and I'm not going to go into the conversations that I've had, but I will just say that um, my conversation with Senator Sinema yesterday was incredibly productive, um, and I believe she is really operating in good faith. I'm going to circle back with Senator Manchin. But here the key thing is, look, the Progressive Caucus took a leap of faith yesterday when we endorsed this proposal, and we also said we want both bills to move forward at the same time when we said the president told us that he has every confidence um, that he will be able to get 50 votes for this for for the Build Back Better Act in the Senate. We do have to trust our president at this point because I think that if he says to us he is going to get the 50 votes and he's confident he can get the 50 votes, then we'll do everything we can to sort of feel as comfortable as we can with it. But that is a bit of a leap of faith. He's also making a big commitment there, a public commitment that he is going to get this done. And I believe him. I trust him. He has done a tremendous amount of work to get to this point, And he has worked very closely with us because he understands that um, the Progressive Caucus is a significant portion of the Democratic Caucus. We are uh, very clear. We have been straight shooters. We haven't tried to hoodwink anybody. Every time we've said we don't have the votes, we don't have the votes. And people should start listening to us when we say that. But we're just looking forward to getting both bills done and um, getting these transformative investments in front of people as quickly as possible. Oh, we've been listening to you for months, uh, Congresswoman. You know, you, you know that. <laughs> So let me. I know you have, Jake. (laughs) So you're the chair of the Progressive Caucus. Just a reminder, viewers, you're leading this fight for universal pre-K and affordable housing and more climate action, expanded health care. Not to mention, of course, this infrastructure bill also on the line. Will you at all feel responsible because you fought for all or nothing if you end up if the Democrats end up with nothing ultimately? Oh, we're not going to end up with nothing. We're going to get this bill passed and uh, we're going to get it passed very soon. Both bills? Oh, yeah, both bills. We're going to get both bills passed very soon. And um, we will do our part in the House. And then obviously the two senators have to stick to what they need to do to deliver. Um, And just remember, Jake, 96% of the Democratic Party was on board with a much bigger bill. But we understand that we have only 50 votes in the Senate. It is a very thin margin. We have only three votes to spare in the House. And we all have to work together. So I think we pushed and we pushed and we pushed. We got to the best possible place we could get to. And now we're ready to pass both bills through the House. I hear on the 96 percent, but it's that 4 percent that makes you the majority. Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thank you. Great to see you as always. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Jake. Prescription drug reforms are out of the Biden agenda for now, leaving so many Americans continuing to struggle to cobble together enough money for life-saving medicine. We'll bring you that story. Plus, breaking this afternoon, the FDA now clearing Pfizer's vaccine for kids as young as five. We're going to talk to an expert next. And our health aid parents, one step closer to being able to get their young kids vaccinated. Today, the Food and Drug Administration granted emergency use authorization 
to Pfizer's smaller dose COVID vaccine for young kids 5 to 11 years old. Let's discuss with Dr. Lee Savio Beers, the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Thanks so much for joining us, doctor. Appreciate it. Um, So what should parents be doing right now if they want to get their kids a shot as soon as possible? There's still this last CDC has to announce that they think it's safe and then it can happen. We expect that to happen Tuesday. If you're a parent out there really eager to have this happen, what should you do? Yeah, you know, if you're a parent and you're really ready to get the vaccine, what I would recommend is actually reach out to your pediatrician and learn where the vaccine is going to be available in your community. I think what we're hearing is that there may be a couple of days, maybe a little bit, maybe a week delay in the vaccine really getting up and running. And and pediatricians are actually working with their communities to get it in their own offices and also to know where in their community it is going to be available. And so reach out to them now so you can start doing some of that pre-planning. Some places are already offering appointments. You can get that. Some places are already offering uh, some of these larger vaccination sites, getting those up and running. So you can you can call now, find out what the plans are so that you can get it on your calendar. So as you know, there's this Kaiser uh, Family Foundation survey that suggests and it matches up with other surveys, other polling, that about a third of parents Mm -hmm. of kids five to 11 are like, great, I'm going to do it. About a third are what is called wait and seers. They want to give it a little time, see how it Mm -hmm. all plays out. And a third are like, hell no, not doing it. What is your message to the two-thirds that are not lining up? Yeah, you know, I think my message is reach out to your pediatrician or to a health professional who you trust to have your questions answered. I'm, I'm, I'm also a mom, actually, of two teenagers. And before my kids got their COVID vaccine, I made sure I had my questions answered. And there's a lot of information out there, and it can be really hard to filter through, actually. A lot of a, bad information. A, a lot of bad information. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so so reach out to your pediatrician. Talk through your questions. You know, t- tell them what your concerns are so that they can can address those concerns. And, and actually, I think what we've seen with the adolescents is that it's, it's, it's been a little bit slow going, but as, as parents are talking to their pediatricians, address, getting their concerns addressed, you know, each, each week more and more adolescents are getting immunized. And so I think, I think we'll see the same thing with our younger kids as well. I, I think it's about half right now of 12 exactly. to 18-year-olds are vaccinated, right? So right. it was a third. Now it's, it's, it is improving. Right. The White House for this rollout mm-hmm. is saying that they want to Rely on pediatricians. Uh, previous rollouts have been, you know, go to your CVS, go to your Rite Aid, go to your school, wherever your city or your state is, is holding vaccine centers. But for this, they're doing it, uh, they're leaning more on pediatricians. It, was that your idea? Like, wh- why? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think it just makes sense. And yeah, it absolutely was something that that we, uh, you know, have recommended. Pediatricians know the families in their practice. I think we also know that that families of younger, the younger your child is, the more comfortable you feel getting your, your vaccines in your pediatrician's offices. Um, and and we want to make sure that we're available and we're there to, to ask questions. I think children's hospitals also are going to play a really important role in this, um, particularly for children with, with complex medical conditions. They, they're very helpful with that. Um, um, so, yeah, I think pediatricians are really excited about it. We, we've, we've been kind of following the data and enrollment, and, and probably about uh, three-quarters of pediatricians now are signed up to be, to be COVID vaccine administrators. So, so we're ready to go. And many have already been doing it for adolescents and for parents. So uh, I'm the son of a pediatrician and a pediatric nurse. Uh, so I'm, you, know, you don't have to convince me of anything. When my son turned 12, we got him the COVID shot. We also, at the same time, got him his flu shot. Do you recommend that or should it be spaced out? Yeah, absolutely. It's perfectly fine to get them both at the same time. It'll save you a trip. Uh, it, it'll save you, you know, two, you know, two, two visits for pokes. So, yeah, absolutely. You can get them both at the same time. And we do absolutely. We are in flu season. So it's, it's time to get your flu shot, too. 
Get your shots, people. And get them for your kids, too, Dr. Uh, Savio Beers. Thank you so much. Great to have you here. Appreciate it. Coming up next, compensation for separation. Families separated at the border under the previous administration could soon be paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in a settlement with the Biden administration. That's next. Internationally, thousands of children were separated from their parents at the border under the previous administration. And now CNN is learning some of those families could be getting hundreds of thousands of dollars each part of an ongoing settlement negotiations and lawsuits brought by migrant families against the U.S. government for what happened during the Trump administration. Joining us now, CNN's Priscilla Alvarez. And Priscilla, exactly how much could these families be getting? Jake, these payments could be significant, but they will likely vary across families. So the Wall Street Journal reported that the federal government is considering $450,000 per individual. Now, a source tells me that number has been raised, but different figures have been raised over the course of this negotiation. And that is what these are, ongoing negotiations. It is still unclear, for example, how many families and who would be eligible for these payments. And all of this, Jake, dates back to 2018, when the Trump administration separated thousands of families at the U.S.-Mexico border. Outside groups called it torture. Government watchdog reports have detailed trauma among children. So the Biden administration coming in, providing services, and engaging in these settlement talks. All right, interesting. We're also learning there's been another attempt by the Biden administration to do away with what's called the Remain in Mexico policy uh, that the Trump administration enacted. Remind us what that is and where does it stand? That's a policy that was put in place in 2019, and it required non-Mexican migrants to wait in Mexico until their U.S. immigration court date. It was an unprecedented departure from previous protocols and left many thousands waiting in dangerous cities along northern Mexico. So the Biden administration came in in June. They terminated that policy. But in August, a federal judge required the administration to bring it back. So today, the administration is announcing a new termination memo to try to pass legal muster. But the big caveat here, Jake, is that in the interim, they still have to restart the program or at least try to restart the program. So the, the case will continue to proceed from here. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Coming up, a tight race in a Commonwealth that President Biden won by 10 points. We're out on the trail with both candidates for Virginia governor. That's next. In our politics lead, it is the final weekend of campaigning in the Virginia governor's race. Late polling indicates that the contest between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin is very close. One Fox poll released last night had Youngkin up, followed by a Washington Post poll this morning showing a dead heat. Our correspondents, Dan Merica and Eva McCander in the Commonwealth for us right now. Dan, let's start with you. Vice President Kamala Harris campaigning for McAuliffe tonight. This race really has Democrats terrified. Yeah, I mean, there's a genuine concern here that Democrats could lose a race that is going to become, and it ha- already has become, a referendum both on eight years of leadership here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, but also, almost more importantly, on leadership in Washington and a Democratic-controlled Washington. McAuliffe was also very concerned early in this race of what turnout would look like in a post-Trump era. And he has tried to address those concerns by tying Youngkin to Trump at every different turn. 
There are questions, though, about how that is working, given an enthusiasm gap between Youngkin and McAuliffe and Democrats and Republicans. The other issue has obviously been the negotiations on Capitol Hill and the fact that there is no deal. Democrats were hoping that they could run on a deal passed by Congress, passed by Democrats. But that obviously does not seem like it's going to happen in the next few days. Early voting ends tomorrow. Take a listen to what McAuliffe told me yesterday about the fact that there is going to be no deal. Compromise is not a bad word. You know, you don't always get what you want in life. But that's the difference, I guess. Governors, we don't have filibusters and all this other kind of stuff. You know, I, I have to have balanced budgets as governor here in Virginia. And they just need to do their job and quit prancing around. Get in a room, get this passed. We need help here in the states. Jake, something to remember is that this is the first year of excuse-free early voting in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Almost a million votes have already been banked. So, you know, as we're watching these last, these late in the weekend polls, some of these swings in momentum, it's important to remember that those late votes, those late swings might not mean as much given how much early voting there has been banked in, the, in this race, Jake. Interesting. And Eva, you're following Republican Glenn Youngkin and, and his campaign sure feels like it has the momentum right now. They do, Jake. You know, the campaign looking and feeling very confident. His supporters as well. They're telling me they haven't seen this much enthusiasm for a Republican in Virginia in a long time. A Republican has not won statewide here in 12 years. And his supporters tell me they truly believe Yunkin is their best shot. And they're not only animated by the cultural issues, like this battle over what the future of Virginia public schools should look like, they're also, frankly, uh, attracted to Yunkin based on sort of these traditional Republican Republican issues. They tell me they like when he talks about lowering taxes, uh, protecting, protecting right to work laws, uh, and uh, the pro law enforcement message. Uh, take a listen uh, to what Youngkin said earlier today on the trail. There was a few polls that came out last night in case anybody noticed. <laughs> you know, and, and people have been saying that this race is tightened up. Polls don't elect governors, voters do. Voters do. So at every campaign stop, we are just seeing uh, a large amount of people, uh, also uh, a large amount of people expected here this evening, this event kicking off around 6.30 p.m. Jake? All right, Dan Marica and Eva McCann, thank you so much. Let's discuss. Ashley, let me start with you. I know that Terry McAuliffe wanted that infrastructure bill, at the very least, if not the Build Back Better Act, to become law before... Tuesday. That will not happen. How much does that hurt him? I think it hurts him some, but I also think that the issue of education is really important here. And so while Democrats don't really have something to run on, Republicans are rallying their base up, not necessarily on Trump, but on cultural war issues like CRT, um, like abortion. And critical I, race theory. Crit CRT. Critical race theory, yes. Um, and really making it, you know, education used to be a very strong Democratic issue, and Republicans have been able to pivot it and make it their issue and really get parents and teachers feuding with one another. And I think that is the issue that will rile the Republican base up that will ultimately hurt Terry McCullough. Are you, I, it's, it's, uh, it seems obvious that parents would care about education, especially in a place like Virginia, uh, and yet, uh, somehow, the Democrats just let Glenn Youngkin take the issue away right. from them. Right, and, and you can really see that in the Washington Post poll, the one that had it as a dead heat. It showed that a month ago, McAuliffe had the traditional Democratic advantage on the issue. But now, 
The number of voters who are citing it as their top issue has grown, and, and they have swung heavily behind the Republican Glenn Youngkin. And you got to wonder whether this changing issue mix and the mood of the electorate is not going to just help Youngkin, but Republicans down ticket as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. A, they have a competitive lieutenant governor race and a competitive attorney general race. And the well. House of Delegates and the could House come Delegate. back to the Republicans after two years being for the Democrats. Absolutely. And Jackie Punchbowl notes that the echoes of 2010, 11 years ago, if you mm. can believe it, Democrats were engaged in a months-long battle over Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. The Tea Party was gaining power and then, quote, losing the Virginia and New Jersey gubernatorial races were the first signs of the coming GOP wave when they won 63 House seats and ended Pelosi's reign as speaker. Um, The New Jersey governor's race is not particularly competitive as far as we can tell. But do you think that that is kind of what's brewing here potentially? I mean, that sounds like a, a scary story to tell in the dark at a, a Democratic <laughs> Halloween party right now um, to use, you know, the, the time of year. But but I think it really depends if, if McAuliffe can put this out, uh, to, can can pull this out, because across the country, you are seeing Democrats, particularly in those swing districts, get really nervous. You heard the backlash after they, they failed to pass these bills that the progressives aren't thinking about districts where th- that aren't like theirs. The frustration from the moderates was very evident so, yes, I, and, I, and I think the alarm bells that are going to ring, whether or not it's warranted. I mean, there's going to be, no matter what happens on Tuesday, there's going to be a, um, an effort on both, or not even an effort, an inclination on both sides to overpronate mm-hmm. <laughs> about what it means. Um, but it, it certainly, if McAuliffe loses, that scream you hear is going to be from the Democratic yeah. caucus. So I want to show you something. We have obviously a, a bunch of staffers, a bunch of producers who, who live in northern Virginia, which is a very competitive part uh, where Democrats really have to rack up a ton of votes. So this is endorsement announcements, a leaflet. Uh, Donald J. Trump, Glenn Youngkin will, quote, do all the things we want a governor to do. This is from a, a rally. And then in fact, Glenn Youngkin, Donald Trump endorsed. Glenn has my complete and total endorsement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, looks like a traditional mailer. Except if you look very closely, <laughs> lavender on blue, almost illegible. This is put out by the Democratic mm-hmm. Party of Virginia. Mm-hmm. The Democratic right. Party of Virginia put out. Well, honestly, you could, you could, if you put, put this in rural Virginia, this would be great for, for Glenn Youngkin. Mm-hmm. But they're hoping for the opposite effect in northern Virginia, the Democrats. Absolutely. In the same way Republicans are trying to make this more of a national referendum around certain cultural issues, Democrats are also putting this in more of a national context by tying Glenn Youngkin to former President Trump because they still believe that a rejection of the former president and Trumpism is going to help drive turnout among Democratic voters. And, you know, you see Terry McAuliffe really kind of trying to drive home that message. You saw former President Obama do it when he took the stump. Now, Glenn Youngkin's a bit interesting because he hasn't outwardly fashioned himself in former President Trump's likeness. He's tried to draw some distance, but he's still trying to court Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. And I think the big question, though, for Democrats is this was a strategy that was effective for them in 2018 when former President Trump was in office, in 2020 when former President Trump was on the ballot. Is it as effective when he is not himself on the ballot, when you're talking about other Republican candidates down ballot, can the entire election still be a referendum on Trump? That's, you know, I think what Democrats are betting for, betting on in part in Virginia. But both this year, the elections in, uh, you know, Virginia and New Jersey, as well as the midterms next year, will be a big test of that strategy has been core to Democratic success. But I just wanted to, it's really quick. I think if Glenn Youngkin does win, you're going to see his strategy of keeping things local, keeping things focused on issues exported to Republicans and districts where maybe Trump isn't the most popular 
um, around the country um, if that is successful. Especially since Trump is not going to Virginia. <laughs> but I mean, I as far think as we know. If, yeah. Well, you know, you can I know we're going to about that. <laughs> this, Virginia has been such an anti-Trump state. Mm-hmm. And if a strategy of tying all the Republicans to Trump doesn't work in Virginia. There are a lot of congressional districts mm-hmm. around the country mm-hmm. that are not as anti-Trump as the state of Virginia is, where presumably the strategy would work even worse. So even if McAuliffe hangs on by one or two points, uh, I think that that's actually not a great result for a lot of Democrats. And I think a lot of Democratic political professionals are going to make that conclusion. Yeah. And it's important to note that um, Donald Trump continues to have a presence in the Republican Party, uh, whether or not Republicans are acknowledging it. Just today, an outspoken Trump critic, Congressman uh, and veteran Adam Kinzinger, a member of the January 6th committee, uh, announced that he will not run for re-election. You can listen to part of his reasoning in this video he put out. Because in this day, to prevail or survive, you must belong to a tribe. Our political parties only survive by appealing to the most motivated, and the most extreme elements within it. And the price tag to power has skyrocketed. And fear and distrust has served as an effective strategy to meet that cost. So we should note that the Democrats that control Illinois just did their redistricting map and they put Kinzinger uh, against LaHood, who is a Congressman LaHood, so they would have to battle it out. LaHood is a much more Trumpy Republican. That would have been a tough fight for Kinzinger in a Republican primary. Um, but I have to say, I am surprised. Mm-hmm. I am surprised uh, that Kinzinger is, is retiring. Absolutely. And even if the redistricting is a part of the calculation, there have been a wave of Republican retirements, both during the Trump presidency and since, that have largely comprised of more of the moderate voices, the prominent critics of former President Trump because they've been pretty clear that they don't really see themselves having a place in the Republican Party as it currently stands. And, you know, Kinzinger alluded to that even in this video. Uh, He's one of the few House Republicans who voted to impeach former President Trump after January 6th. And, you know, Trump and his allies have also made it clear that they were going to primary any of these Republicans who either voted to impeach him or who were critical uh, of him. So it's very much still Donald Trump's party, make no mistake. And and Ramesh, and then, and and Asa, we'll go to you. Um, After Kinzinger announced this, because one of, there are 10 Republicans that voted to impeach Donald Trump. Uh, Congressman Gonzalez, who was at one point thought to be the shining light and a star in the Republican Party, maybe someday he would be the first Cuban-American president. He has announced he's retiring after Trump said he was going to challenge him with a congressman, uh, a, a hope would-be congressman, Max Miller. And then now you have uh, Kinzinger dropping out. That's two of the ten dropping out. And Donald Trump put out a statement, two down, eight to go. That's right. And, uh, and Josh Mandel put out one where he called them traitors again, um, which tells you about the, the mood of a certain segment of the Republican Party. Josh Mandel also wants Donald Trump's endorsement. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But he, and he thinks that's the way to get it. Totally. But, the uh, you know, one of the interesting things about this— I do think there's a certain short-sightedness on the part of the Democrats in Illinois. They did what a traditional, normal political party does, right? Gerrymanders aggressively to help itself and, and get rid of some of the other team. But if you really believe the things that a lot of Democrats say about the threat to democracy, I think that it means you need to have some allies on the other side. And they have just eliminated one of those potential allies. That's, I mean, I have to admit, I, I've heard this argument before. Uh, Illinois lost a congressional seat. They could have kept Kinzinger in uh, a seat that was reasonable and rational so that there are 
non-Trumpy Republicans who exist, which is important. Theoretically, I think we would all agree. And yet they were they were ruthless. We don't want you know, we don't know how slim the majority is going to be of the Republicans or Democrats. We don't care. We only want to give the Republicans one congressional seat of the whatever they have, 19. I'm not going to blame the Democrats for the reason why (laughs) Kinder is not running again. I mean, two down, eight to go. I think we know why he took a step out of the race. The thing that is interesting about him and those that are aligned with the belief that Donald Trump lost is where do they go? Because if you go back to our original conversation around Virginia, are they going to vote for Terry McAuliffe, the people who uh, voted to certify the election? Are they going with the Democrats or are they forming another type of party? He says that this is not the end of his political career. So what is next? Because they clearly don't have a home in the Republican Party right now. All right. Thanks, one and all. Have a great weekend. Have a great Halloween. Tuesday night is election night in America. CNN is going to cover the high stakes governor's races in both Virginia and New Jersey, plus the New York City mayor's race. I'll be anchoring our special live coverage starting Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, skyrocketing prescription drug prices, forcing some Americans to stretch their life-saving medicine just to get by. That's next. I promise you the rates are going to fall through the floor. Plan that slashes the cost of prescription drugs by 60%. How many of you know somebody who's had to sell things just to get the drugs that have gone up exponentially? Blasts from the not-so-distant past, bringing us to our money lead today in a campaign line that President Biden used time and again convincing Americans that slashing the cost of prescription drugs would be a top priority of his administration. He would allow Medicare, leading the charge to pass a law to allow Medicare to negotiate prices with drug companies. But now that's a flashpoint in that big spending bill and one that progressives are fighting to get back into the plan. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz finds one American who has been forced to decide between paying bills and paying for her life-saving medicine. All this is insulin. Donna Miller has been on insulin for her diabetes for nearly two decades. This is long-term. This is short-term. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. Her dosages, prescriptions, and monitoring. Routine and like clockwork. Until she got a bill for $3,000. Well, I can't say what my emotion was on, on, on TV, but I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's unbelievable. The two insulin drugs she says cost her $100 a month through Medicare skyrocketed to $1,000 a month. I can't afford it. This week, President Biden failed to reach an agreement on lowering prescription drug prices in his economic package, which would have allowed Medicare to negotiate directly with drug companies. No one got everything they wanted, including me. But an issue critical to the 18 million Americans who can't afford their prescription medication. It's been an issue for, honestly, for decades. There's a real risk that it could be, you know, many, many years before they're able to come back to the table and do something about it. Leaving Americans like Miller taking drastic measures. Why have you had to change your dosage? Because that that helps you stretch your insulin out. And the majority of voters across party lines support the government negotiating with drug companies, disagreeing with industry claims it could affect funding for drug research. What I hope that I could be confident in is that people from all sides of the political party 
understand that this is not a Democrat issue and it's not a Republican issue. It's a people issue. My friend just gave me this because her aunt no longer needed them. Without that pile from your friend, though. Then I would have had to buy insulin. I'm so grateful I got that. With this, Miller says she has enough insulin to last her through the end of the year, but spends her days looking for discount programs to bring down costs. Without this insulin, what would happen to you? I'd probably die. I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I mean, I, I'm so sure that insulin is a life-sustaining drug. You will die. Now, there are two other key provisions that did not make it into President Biden's Build Back Better framework. Those are paid family leave and dental and vision coverage under Medicare. Hearing coverage under Medicare did make it in. But, Jake, these are two compromises that the president said that he had to make in order to push his economic and social plan forward. And Vanessa, the Biden administration says just because it's not in this bill doesn't mean they're going to not try again. But if these provisions never make it into this framework or the next, what will that mean for these families? That means they'll have to wait many, many more years. We've heard from advocates on these issues for these specific provisions, and they feel like if these items do not make it into this bill, it'll be many, many more years before anything impactful is done to help these millions of Americans, like Donna, you saw right there, get the help that they need. Jake. Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thank you so much for that report. New doctor's orders for Queen Elizabeth. That's next. And our world lead climate change activists from around the globe gathered to make their voices heard today ahead of an international climate summit. In London, high-profile activist Greta Thunberg joined a protest against British financial institutions that fund climate polluters. The demonstrations come a few days before the start of the United Nations Climate Conference in Scotland, which President Biden and other world leaders will attend. The United Kingdom's reigning monarch, Will not be attending, however. Even queens have to follow doctor's orders. 95-year-old Queen Elizabeth has been advised by her physicians to rest for at least the next two weeks. The Buckingham Palace announcement comes a little more than a week after the queen spent a night in the hospital. Doctors say she can continue to perform light desk-based duties, but not to undertake any official visits. Tune into State of the Union on Sunday. The guests, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, and Senator Bernie Sanders. It's at 9 and noon Eastern, only on CNN. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead, CNN. You can also catch our show on our own podcast. Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer, live from Rome. See you soon. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.